0: Now more than ever, the industry that fuels the world needs the right people to modernize and unify a global energy platform. The transformation is both digital and cultural. Join us as we explore strategies for success in the hyper-competitive war for talent, here on the Energy Workforce of Tomorrow podcast. Hosted by the IBM North American Oil & Gas Team,
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Energy Workforce of Tomorrow. My name is Jason Duff, your host today, and also the IBM North America oil and gas lead. Today, I've got a new co-host. He has got a different accent than I have. He probably understands a lot more than some of my Texas friends do. Hello, Mark Hall. Good
2: morning, Jason. Great to
1: be here. Thanks for the invite to join with you today. Thank you. This is another bearded gentleman. I know you can't see Mark Hall, and he has got a strange accent, but where are you from, and what do you do, Mark, for IBM?
2: Originally from the UK. That was me being inclusive rather than saying I'm oh. the nicer part of our Fair Island. So you're from uh, Scotland. We've got awful neighbours. That's a thing.
1: <laughs> we have David Reed on here. We have Neil Syme. There's too many Scotsmen. We've got Robin McMillan and you now coming in from the English side. So it's better, Mark. So That's please. it. So
2: the top performing Northern Hemisphere rugby team from the recent World Cup although that doesn't say a lot for how we did. But uh, nevertheless, yes, I'm also part of IBM. I work very closely with Jason and his team. I'm actually part of the strategic sales team within IBM, which means focusing on our accounts with the most complex and diverse needs and bringing all of IBM together to come up with solutions that meet their medium and long-term strategic needs. So delighted to be joining with Jason on the podcast today. And as an avid listener of the podcast over the last few months since it first started, the idea of this workforce of tomorrow, specifically as it relates to the energy industry, is one that's really fascinating to me. Especially when we start to expand the definition of the workforce from people through digital, through alliances and partnerships. And it's really with that mindset that I brought along a guest today. So, with your permission, Jason, I'd like to induce, Please. introduce introduce the person on the call. On you go. I've got with me David Borowski from West Monroe. Dave and I have known each other for probably about 15 years or so, pretty much since I came to the US. We worked together. Dave was working client side, I was supplier side, and we've kept in touch. I value his insights, his perspectives, his partnership on lots of opportunities we've worked on over the years, but also really just keeping track of what's going on in the industry, how he sees things. He's very close to the customer community and really making sure that we're continuing to keep tuned in to what the market is saying, where the market's going, understanding what he's seeing from his side. And with that, maybe Dave, I'll throw the mic over to you and love for you to introduce your listeners to who you are and what you do.
0: Yeah, happy to. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Jason. Appreciate the invitation to be on the podcast. Good morning. Good morning to all the listeners. Mark did a great introduction so far. I'd like to think I sponsored him coming to the US. (laughs) Yeah. How much did you pay for that intro, Dave? I'm not sure if it's... Priceless or valueless. I'm not sure that the difference between those two sometimes, but it's been yeah, 15 years is about right, but a ton of great collaboration over that time. I think one of the things that we have found is we've worked alongside one another, sometimes with different orientations or perspectives, whether it's client facing or on the provider side is we agree much more frequently than we disagree on things and how to provide value really ultimately for the client and for the relationship. So maybe taking a step back, I'm a senior partner with West Monroe. West Monroe, for those of you that don't know, is a leading digital services firm based out of Chicago. We provide strategy and operational advisory services, as well as digital design and development services for our clients, about 2,000 consultants. The work that I do specifically is really around developing, designing, and nurturing client and third-party service provider relationships. So traditionally, that would be characterized as an outsourcing advisory services, Leader. For us, we tend to not only focus on what's superficially necessary for the client to feel like they're getting a good deal, but what's really necessary for them to create sustainable value over time. So we feel a much more balanced approach to what the deal should look like, what the strategy should look like, and then ultimately what the operational service delivery model should look like. That's really how Mark and I often find ourselves in conversations around what's the right answer for the client.
1: Cool. So Dave, number one, at least there's not another Brit on this call, because that would have been slightly embarrassing, I think, and the Brits trying to take over in the US, that wouldn't work. So thank you for being the American in this one. The other thing I was thinking about as well, just to kick this off, maybe thinking, Dave, you and I talked pre-show, and Mark, thanks for introducing me to Dave as well. We all know that oil and gas, when it comes to IT and outsourcing, you have the RPO, the recruitment process outsourcing, we're trying to do it more end to end. Business And maybe this is a great podcast, as you said earlier, to follow on from it, to look at third-party service delivery. But if we just start with oil and gas, generally it's still a P times Q market, isn't it? There's always P times Q, it's service levels, it's governance, green means good, etc., which there's underlying pinning issues.
0: That's always my view, Mark. Do you see the same, Dave? I do, yeah. And maybe even before we get to that, I'm not sure if I'm the one with the accent or the one without the accent on this podcast. Sorry, what's he saying, Mark? Can you understand yeah. what he's
2: saying? Does <laughs> it smile and nod? Smile and <laughs> nod.
0: Yeah, just make sure that there's a transcript available for all the listeners, I guess. <laughs> Jenny, eyes coming up at the end. It's all right. I would say that's true for oil and gas, but it's not exclusively true for oil and gas. And even though We've been hearing, and Mark, I'd be interested to get your perspective on this as well, for probably 10 to 12 years now, about there's been this evolution of commercial models from something that used to be more P times Q or FTE based to more outcome based or business results based. And you see that in pockets and you do see the occasional really good example of that. But for the most part there's a safety, I think, for a lot of people in something that's simple, easy to measure, and maybe a little bit more predictable. Yeah, within oil and gas and even beyond, the dominant model still is something that's much more transaction-based or much more resource unit-based, like a person that's providing an allocated capacity, as opposed to a real meaningful business outcome where there's shared risk and shared upside.
2: I think one of the interesting pieces there, Dave, is When we first met 15 years ago, that was the predominant business model. The question remains, when we look across the technology landscape and we see things that have changed massively in the last 15 years, how come we haven't evolved that governance, that commercial modeling? What do you think it is? that's been holding us back. And maybe just before you answer that, Dave, Jason, I'll pull you in. I mean, you mentioned to me a few weeks ago, you'd had a client, again, sort of challenging your notion of why are we doing this government? If we've got pressure from the client, if we've got pressure from ourselves, and if we see that evolution elsewhere, why are we still transacting in this way? What's the limiting factor, do we think?
0: Yeah, I think there's all sorts of different ways to respond to that. I think we still see challenges with client data. And By making too many assumptions, it introduces risk. And so to a great extent, if you want to have something that's much more results-based or outcome-based, you need to have a really good baseline of historical performance, and you need to have a really clean way to measure what value looks like or what improvement looks like. And sometimes the data is just not there or it's not there reliably. So I think that is certainly one dimension. And the other, maybe this is the cynic in me that comes to mind, is it's around trust that usually with a first-generation outsourcing relationship... There's no inherent credibility because as a service provider, you haven't done good work for that client before, regardless of whether you have a stellar reputation in the marketplace, regardless of whether or not you have a lot of success. There's not that one-to-one connectivity or that one-to-one credibility where you've provided a service like that, and therefore, there's an inherent trust that comes with that. And that's hard to overcome right out of the gate, right? That only comes... After having been in a constructive value creating relationship for probably a couple or a few years before you can really get to the point where you're having those conversations around, how do we take this to the next level? How do we think about there's more services that you can provide strategically to clients than they're probably aware of out of the gate. Even if they're aware of them, they're a little skeptical about the value that that creates or the impact that that has.
1: I think, Dave, I'd build on that one as well. I, I see if it's first time, as you rightly said, it's difficult. You go the, through this trough of, I uh, don't understand the accents. Why are we doing this? Why are we collaborating? The, uh, it has to be SLAs. They don't understand the word governance, I feel like, sometimes. I also feel maybe the root cause of this is you have the business or the CIO agree to this if it's going to be IT outsource. Then you get handed to CPO, I'm not probably going to wreck my CPO relationships out there now, but we tend to start making it transactional. How are we going to measure it? What are you going to do? You're going to assume many tickets. Here's the SLAs. I'm going to penalize you. I think sometimes if that goes wrong or we're pulling each other, then we're managing contracts and relationships around relationships and the work we do around a contract, which is clearly right from one sense, but probably the wrong way to do it because like we say our governance for me dave should be there if there's an issue and there's always going to be an issue quickly get a hold of the right people at the right level clear it out make sure you've taken the right action preventative measures come forward boom you're done but i still see too much like you say green slas that's a big issue and no one wants to say hey there was an issue last week and guess why or a level one support ticket really means the business is going to come down. You're paying a lot of money for an L1. There's a little bit of misunderstanding there. It's an interesting one. I still think, and the other thing, just to pile on there, even if it's not, when you start going from T&M to managed service, the bit that I get back to is people connecting with people. So I'm trying to get you to a managed service now and maybe reduce your cost by 25 30%, because we all know we can consolidate some work, automate, leverage, the comment will come back is, but hold on, I like Mark and Dave. Yeah, so do I, but what are you doing? Are you buying friends with the dollars you're giving me, or are you buying an outcome? And I think that goes back to, I think the P times Q, I think it will come, but we're migrating slowly, and we do need to get to value-based contracts and really make sure we're delivering a value. I think we get put in a box, Dave, sometimes, and say, I need 100 people to do this work, and it's like, shh, dude. It's going to take me so long away to get to a managed service and really drive different thinking value, even thinking out the box and sitting with the L1 guys and trying to conclude the tickets at that level. I still think we've got a long
0: way to go, Dave. I don't
1: know if that resonates with you, at West Monroe, and what you see.
0: It is resonant with us, and it's a message that we try and communicate with our clients as well, and, and frankly, with the service providers as we're trying to establish relationships. And it's hard to measure... What good means sometimes. It's also hard to yeah. measure what bad means sometimes. And that is, I think, to your point earlier about very specifically defined or discrete metrics in SLAs or KPIs associated with those. It feels safe at the time because it's a way to measure accuracy or timeliness. It's a way to get a sense for whether something's in control. Yeah. But we've seen so many examples of something that's in control, but doesn't provide a good experience for the client. And if it doesn't provide a good experience for the client, it probably isn't a great experience for the provider either. We see this all the time when we get into initial discovery discussions with the client. It's easy to say, I have this many people in my operation. It's easy to point to an organizational chart and and, and count the boxes. It's easy to say, this is how many transactions are flowing through the system. It's harder to say, this is how I know if I'm operating my group, my function successfully or not. And it's even harder, I think, to translate overall functional success into something that's a meaningful metric when your service provider has responsibility for part of a process and they have an influence over and responsibility for a portion of a business process cycle, but maybe not that business process cycle in its totality. And so what you're left with is the things that are easy to measure but maybe a sense of lingering dissatisfaction on the back end, regardless of whether those things that are easy to measure are determined to be successfully completed or not. Mark, I don't know, as a service provider, is that resonant with what you see as somebody who's then accountable for the performance or or is that a different orientation?
2: Yes, I think you're spot on there, Dave. I mean, the reality is that if it's easy, it gets managed, right? That old mantra. And I think what we collectively have an obligation and responsibility to do. So here we are, we're at the start of a new year. We're at the start of a new technology ship. There's so many organizations, starting with the tech companies right now, who've been throughout 2023, laying off huge amounts of workers, all in the name of efficiency. You have generative AI, it's making massive impacts. And who knows what the eventual transformation this will deliver to all of our lives in so many different ways. And as we start to think about that, as we overlay that with your commentary around how do we deliver value? How do we deliver those differentiated outcomes? I'm almost thinking back to that. We've known each other 15 years. That was before the iPhone came out and how much has changed in that time. And yet we're still having the same conversations about how we measure outcomes or how we pay our providers. So how do we encourage that mindset that says, let's acknowledge from the service provider community, look, maybe we don't control all the inputs, Hmm. but we have a good understanding of where they come from. It's not like this is the first time we've been involved or engaged in this type of interaction. And we have capabilities and influence beyond perhaps the sphere of our statement of work. And we have the opportunity to be remunerated beyond the P times Q, because maybe we can be more imaginative and creative in our commercial construct. If we were to look for who is the North Star, who's the guiding light on this? Both Jason and I have a very strong sort of oil and gas orientation. Dave, you and your colleagues at West Monroe look across the market. Who do you see who's doing this really well? And what are those uh, behaviors that they are embracing that allows them to move forward with this kind of approach?
0: Yeah, I love that question. And you're right. We do have either the advantage or the disadvantage of having seen what works, (laughs) maybe more often, what works across industries. And I'll start by saying the places that do it the best are often the places that aren't as cost constrained. I do believe that there's a relationship between how much room you have for investment in the relationship and the value you get out of the relationship. Because what we see I will answer the question directly in a second. But what we see is when you're going through an initial selection process, let's say it's an RFP for whatever outsource service you want to solicit and you want to buy, you start off with a business case. And that business case often gets squeezed, right? It gets squeezed when you're asking for pricing concessions, but it also gets squeezed when you're looking at the cost to govern the relationship. Those are the easy things to take out, the contingency, the internal investment or the retained organization investment. And how do I manage this moving forward? When there's no room left, it's hard for the client to do the things that it needs to, legitimately needs to do for the relationship to be successful. And this is where, as an advisor, we do our best to take out any conditions precedent, right? to take out any real dependencies, because what we want is for there to be a firm commitment to the result. And the result may be a productivity and improvement or performance improvement, but there are real legitimate dependencies that you as a provider have on the client. And we've seen too many times that the client says oh we're implementing this new technology right we're implementing oracle or sap and when we do everything is going to be magically better as a provider <laughs> you say okay no, i know how oracle works i know how sap works i know that if done correctly there's an efficiency or a productivity gain that we can expect out of it and therefore we're willing to underwrite i'm making up a number but a 40 percent productivity improvement over the five-year life of this contract if the implementation doesn't go well, there's a consequence to that, right? And you're maybe not able to achieve the productivity commitment that you've underwritten. And there's a very real implication associated with that, that now all of a sudden, do you have the ability as a provider to invest the way that you need to if something goes wrong? And something always goes at least a little bit wrong. At that point, are you so squeezed on margin that you have to try and make up for it elsewhere? The plate That was a really long context-ridden no, exposition on point. when clients have the budget to invest in the things that they need to do to make the relationship successful, we see that the relationship at least has a chance to be successful and feel successful. We see this a lot in tech. The places where I can point to the most, where they've been on a hyper-growth trajectory, and as a consequence of that, they're much less concerned about cost pressures than they are inhibitors or governors to growth. They want to be able to make sure that they've got the partnerships in place that they can scale effectively, not necessarily cost effectively. So one thing I think is, what is your governance structure going to look like? And how are you going to invest in that? And you do need to invest in that for this to feel good in year three or feel good in year five. The other quick point I guess I'll make before I get a reaction is, I do think that having some flexibility in the commercial structure so that it can mature and evolve as the relationship matures and evolves is really important. And Mark, you had mentioned this, that if it starts off as P times Q, if it starts off as an FDE-based deal chances are it's going to remain as an FTE-based deal or as a P times Q type deal, yes. unless the group collectively has a mechanism through which they can discuss how do we evolve this commercial model. And unless there's flexibility that's allowed in the contract, it's harder to have that conversation. So I do think creating the forum and having the discussion is important.
1: You got me thinking, Dave. It's quite funny, I sat it dry. I was writing down contract versus, contract versus the relationship we have because my sense... We are driven originally. I'd like to get Wes Monroe, how do you do this? Because I think it is ultimately, over the three, five years, if you choose the right partner, forget the contract. This is Jason's view, I think, and that's what I see in oil and gas. As long as you choose the right partner, the confidence grows, you really become embedded, and you trust each other. It's a great contract. But what I see just now is the contract becomes, like you just exactly like said, Dave, It gets totally given to someone to make it a transaction and driven by dollars. And it's almost transactional then. I think in the end, we sign a contract. It feels good, but we've been through the wars already. But the partnership becomes, it's not even the engagement between both IT supplier and client becomes transactional. And it's very much we've selected you. Let's see. You're kind of put on a pedestal and, okay, on stage, let's see how you perform. And then clearly through the time it starts coming to the transaction becomes a relationship because hopefully you put the right governance in, you do the right things, you start delivering, confidence grows, and then you become partner. But we never build the flexibility into the contract like that. It's quite an interesting point that you've said. And I wonder if that's where what's missing. And again, I don't know if you're choosing the right partners for the right clients, but there seems to be in some ways we move through this cycle and maybe the cycle has to happen. You you have to get selected and build confidence before you become a real partner. But there's almost a bit of a we should be telling clients, and I guess that's West Monroe are doing it. guys, this is a partnership. You're buying into a long term. It's like getting married, joking apart. It's dude, I'm gonna be in your offices. Mark and Jason are gonna be having badges, with governance, going through things, things are gonna be shared that are gonna be bad. And then you're gonna have to help us through this. I don't know how you're doing it West Monroe, of how do you drive someone through that of guys realize this is a big change, but if you just stay to your contract and make it unflexible, guess what? Mark and Jason are going to get a bit bored with it because you'll always stay at that transactional stage, hitting green SLAs, being bored. You're not going to get the best of IBM or what other person, uh, partner you bring in. Any views of that, Dave?
0: Yeah. And I like the analogy and it's actually one, the kind of marriage analogy that you use. And it's one that we use internally where we see ourselves as matchmakers to a certain extent. And we even mm-hmm. will occasionally refer to the contract as the prenup. But if you think about a successful marriage,
1: <laughs> it's just what it's this is, Dave, are, are we guys. trying to get, yeah, I'm bringing you and counseling. Mark together today,
0: Dave.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know you, you guys know 80. each other. Yes.
0: <laughs> but you? how often in a successful marriage, is it successful because you refer to the prenup all the time? You want to have the contract in place in case things go in a direction that nobody wants for them to go, but you don't, you shouldn't have to refer to it on a day to day basis. If you do, it probably doesn't feel good. The contract is almost a necessary evil, and it is truly necessary because I'm sure you have been aware of or involved in things that have gone sideways with a third party relationship. Absolutely. And, you know, lawyers get involved occasionally. You want to avoid that as much as possible, but you need to have the protections in the risk orientation just in case. But often the contract for us, it establishes the structures for operations, but it isn't a substitute for having operational discussions. For us, going in and advising a client means more than just negotiating a risk-based contract. We really want to become a strategic advisor to the client at the executive level and at the operational level so that they understand what is it that they should be getting into and how should they be thinking about supporting the relationship moving forward and investing in the relationship moving forward. And often we have a fair amount of influence over that. We don't always have a fair amount of influence over that. Sometimes there are other pressures like cost pressures that um, just introduce realities into the way that they support the relationships. But for us, I think it's certainly establishing a good structure and a good foundation so that the relationship has the ability or the opportunity to generate value and feel good, right? The experience is good over time, but then also supplementing that with real advice, counsel, throughout the course of the solicitation and beyond. So they realize when they're making a good decision and when maybe they're making a not so good decision. Those are tough conversations to have. There's not always a receptivity to, hey, you shouldn't do this because. So
1: Dave, have you put a cost to just thinking about this? Because you're right. And a lot of these contracts go wrong because of that. I think you'd agree, Dave, of, yeah, I've chosen the cheapest one. We get going, there's no real cultural fit between it and they have to rip it out and give it to someone else. West Monroe, have you guys done anything on the cost of doing that? Because that's the other one. Like you said, quick and easy marriage because Mark's the cheapest player on the table. It's only they see the scope as, yeah, let's take it. And then they have to rip it out. Any views of those hiccups are costly for the client and partnerships and progression as well, right?
0: Yeah, they are. And I wish there was a kind of a rule of thumb cost that we'd been able to, to come up with. But the ways that we typically would characterize the implications of that, one is just the speed to stabilization, Think about it as squeezing a balloon. By the time you establish a new relationship, by the time you go live, and by the time you stabilize after you've gone live in this new service delivery model, there's a certain amount of effort that's going to be expended. The less you support the design as a client, the less you support the implementation, the less you support the stabilization, you're just squeezing the balloon in the middle, right? It's going to extend out on the back end, and it's going to take longer to truly be operationally efficient, and even longer to feel like you're in... A collaborative, beneficial relationship. Speed to value or speed to stabilization is something that we talk about all the time. We've got a whole capability called transformation enablement. You can think about it as a lot of change management and a lot of project management discipline that we try and impose upon the transitions that we have the opportunity to support. And when we look at the transitions that are deemed to be successful by the operators. And I think part of the challenge that we have is that there's a different orientation depending upon whether the CFO thinks it's successful or a director in an operational capacity thinks it's successful. From a CFO's perspective, if we're achieving the business case and we're still able to close the books and pay our vendors and apply cash to our customers' accounts, and they don't have visibility to all of the disruption that happens, the micro disruption that happens on a day-to-day basis, still feels pretty successful to them. For an operator that's dealing with firefighting on a day-to-day basis, it feels far from successful. So there's a little bit of that that you have to navigate depending upon who you're talking to. So my orientation for this is less the C-level feeling of success and more the operator's level of success. Do they feel like things are under control on a day-to-day basis and they're not constantly having to deal with firefighting? We try and, for us, we embed ourselves within their organizations to make sure that we understand what is it that's going to be required for the transition to be successful? And our role often isn't a vendor management role when we're in that kind of support capacity. We're not telling IBM, we do this as well, but it's not, it's not the primary focus often that we're telling IBM, this is what you agreed to and by God, you better be done by that date or else there's a penalty. We're working right to left if you think about it on a transition timeline. We're trying to anticipate What's necessary for you to hit these major milestones as a client? And then we're working with the client so that they're able and prepared and capable of doing all the things that they need to, to hit that milestone. So often I think as a provider, you're Mm -hmm. conditioned to having an advisor in there telling you what to do and kind of threatening a consequence. We see ourselves as facilitators as much, if not more on the client side than on the provider side, helping them to appreciate what are all of the prerequisites that are necessary to happen for the transition to be successful and for everybody to hit the milestones.
1: Mark, just thinking what Dave just said here, you a good point earlier because we all know you and I's funnel, and I'm sure as we transitioned the business, a lot of our work has gone from the IT space into digital. I wonder, Mark, how this is good, because if we don't take some of Dave's wise words there... We're going to just stumble into this in the digital work, aren't we? I mean, it's all going to be the same thing. Of, well, just And actually, it's going to be even more important because as we go to digital, we need to go at speed. As we know, as we talked about, Mark, and we'll go back to this. Well, hold on. Let's focus on dollars and contract. What's your view of that, Mark? Because that's a big worry, I think, for you and I,
2: right? So I think that's a risk. Absolutely, Jason. What's made me optimistic about the future is... Actually, a little bit of sort of conflation or or obfuscation there maybe works in everybody's favor in that, Measuring bodies and measuring a cost per FTE is something that everybody has an innate sense of what is the cost? What is the cost of hiring an IBMer versus a ABC Corp, one of somebody in my own organization? And often that's one of the first triggers for, okay, a P times Q conversation. Yeah. I think as we start to morph more towards these outcomes, which by definition are more front and center when we start talking about digital workers and a blend of digital people, alliance, partner, other outcomes it starts to become harder to say, okay, my comparison for that is X or Y. And really building on Dave's point, if we can use that jumping the S-curve to think about, okay, how do I start to educate and change the focus to value creation versus cost management? And it's a little hackneyed saying, but how do we grow the size of the pie rather than divvy up the size of the pie? That's the opportunity for us. And maybe for both us and customers, just by taking away the comparator, which is, this is the cost of an FTE in the US, this is the cost of an FTE in my internal organization, this is the cost of an FTE offshore, to saying, okay, here's the value we're going to bring, and here's the associated cost, here's the speed-to-value timeline, the ROI is X, and the speed-to-value is Y, and our breakeven point is Z. I did that for our audience there, Z, not Z.
1: Look at you becoming American, Mark.
2: There we go. I've been here a while now. But I think that's the opportunity for us all. And when Dave talks about the clients who are really showing the way here in that tech space, who are seeing hyper growth and are focused on how do we enable our business versus how do I manage the cost? And of course, cost is important and it has to be managed throughout. But I think it's for us to make sure that we're educating our clients and showing them the value that's on the table and not just succumbing to the conversation about, okay, if we take another dollar off here or a yeah. transition timeline there, that's the thing that we should be focused on. But
1: just on. a challenge to that one, Mark, before we bring Dave back in, it's going to be the same people, right? You and I go and look at some digital work and we'll start doing... Digital work, some downhole valves, and there'll be output, etc. But we'll end up with the same people as my worry, Dave, as Mark said, that we work in the same people and people go, yeah, yeah, yeah really nice things, but let's get back to the dollars and what you're going to do. That scares the bejeebus out of me because the digital work really is there of, it should be outcome-based. Do we need to train more people on what this is or any views of that, Dave? Because for me, that's the biggest concern. We'll do this in a year's time, two years' time, And if we don't move on, we'll see this huge digital trend, but the contracts will then force us doing crazy things and not moving on. Makes sense, Dave?
0: It does to me. And Mark, as you were talking, I was just thinking the words zero-sum game came to mind. And I think historically, in the advisor community, we've been just as guilty of this as, as anybody, where at least initially the thought was somebody's got to win and somebody's got to lose. In a negotiation, there's no such thing as a mutually beneficial partnership. It's that if I give something up to the provider, that's something less than I'm going to get. And I think we've made strides there, right? I think collectively in negotiations, we've made strides. But now it's shifted into the commercial model where the same behavior that you just described, that if you get something, that's something I'm not going to get. Or if I get something, it's something you're not going to get. So it kind of shifted from legal terms to commercial terms, where there's a belief that Any of this additional value that you could create through helping a client to transform into more of a digital service delivery model, that's A, maybe something they could have gotten on their own. And B, why should they share in the upside on that if that's the case? I think it is a really important point that we have to break some of these old paradigms. And all three parties in this have to be responsible for doing so. We as advisors, you as providers, and the client as consumers of the services have to be open to the idea that there's an ability to make for whatever it is around the rising tides in all ships, right? The pie is actually getting bigger as a consequence of some of the strategic and innovative principles that you can help bring to the partnership. So yes, appetite or receptivity to it is something that has to improve for this to get additional traction. But I also think making it real for the client is going to be really, really important. And In my experience, having done this with, and this isn't specific to IBM, with providers in lots of different transactions, often the value creation principle is presented in kind of a vague way. What we find, especially the finance teams that we support gravitate towards, and as a consequence, I think we gravitate towards this, is what can you quantify and predict? If you can't quantify, of course, but if you can't predict it, it becomes a little bit more squishy, a little bit more nebulous. And it's harder than to really have a great appreciation that this is a value, a benefit that the client's going to get out of there. So I think making it as real as possible and possibly thinking about absorbing more risk on the provider side. I think what we've seen typically is that that gain share model presents very little skin in the game for the provider, right? It's a couple of percentage points. It's 5% or something like that, as opposed to 20%, 25%. So I think the relationship between gain and risk, there's something there that we need to reconsider in conversations around what's the upside and how are we going to invest in achieving that upside together? And if we don't achieve it, then there needs to be shared pain on the back end. That's probably the wrong way to frame it. But those are the thoughts that come to mind.
1: You know, Dave, we talked about this as well. I'd love to get one of my colleagues, Mike Galanis, who works in one of the, almost as a pseudo-CPO, but has been in his career. I'd love to get him on a podcast with me, you, him, and Mark, actually, because bringing, let's say, a client into this or his experience, and he talks about partnerships, and he talks about contracts. That would be a great one, Dave. I'd love to get that next. I actually just took a picture of us, the bearded gentleman, (laughs) (laughs) as we do this. Onto Mike, it's a dude. The next podcast, the end of Jan, early Feb. I really want him because I'd love to get Dave. You're both of you guys now. I listen to this. I'm even more convinced now that that conversation could go even deeper on. How do you take that relationship side, and how do we take that contractual, and how do you make it work? I think it's a bit of magic. It's putting a music on and being able to dance. A lot of people look at I think
2: the great thing is though, yeah. right now there is a seismic shift. We're moving away from the linear model with Absolutely. technology, with AI, with all these new capabilities coming to bear. It does present one of those sort of once in a 10-year cycle opportunities for us to shift how we think about these things. And I think, you know, what we're going to see is the companies who are and the clients and indeed the providers and the advisors who really embrace and capture the art of the possible and the potential value out there are going to separate from those who find it easy to stick with the own, yeah. the stasis way of looking at things. So I think that's on all of us to see who is it who's achieving the best out there? Who is it who's really setting new standards for how these things are managed? And making sure, of course, we have to adapt it to our own needs, but making sure we make that change rather than living with what's easiest to manage. And maybe that takes us all the way back to the beginning of Of the uh, pod here. Just because it's easy doesn't mean it's best, right? And how are we striving for that next opportunity?
1: It's interesting you say that, Mark, because we have changed. And I believe in the last four or five years, I feel that us as consultants and going in, we do change now and we're looking at relationships and partnerships much differently. We respond less to white space RFPs or RFPs that just come up where people get quite excited about these things. So I think the market's changed. I'm interested, Dave, I don't know about us. We're actually going then and breaking into new areas because we need to go to the business, deliver digital the business and then drive that back in that says, dude, we need this. That's what's going to happen. I'm interested in what West Monroe see of happening or how even you guys are evolving. I mean, what do you do now or in the future that you haven't done the
0: last four or five years? Yeah. And the lens that I'll apply is really our role as an advisor in establishing a good mutually beneficial long-term relationship in responding yeah. to that. And Mark and I have talked a lot about this in the past, that if, if I look back to the way that we administered RFPs 10 years ago, 12 years ago, 15 years ago, Mark, thinking back to 2009 when we first started interacting with one another. He's smiling. It was probably, <laughs> you worked him <them> hard there, Dave. <laughs> yeah, he would have worked hard, even independent of our collaboration, I'm sure. Yeah. But the approach was Probably anybody that's been on the receiving end or even the administering end of an RFP is probably familiar with, right? There are loads of requirements and there's an indication of whether or not you comply with a requirement or whether you take an exception to the requirement. And there's a very formulaic way that you score those and weight them. And as we were talking about with things like gain sharing, things like additional value creation, those inherently were probably weighted lower than a lot of the other areas because they were inherently nebulous. So they were inherently a little bit vague or squishy. And in retrospect, it kind of seemed like what we were doing was optimizing for scoring. What we wanted to be able to do was provide an apples to apples normalized comparison in a relatively short period of time so that everybody could compare provider A to provider B to provider C on an equal footing. Mm-hmm. That's not really our job. It shouldn't be our job. Our job shouldn't be to force everybody down to the lowest common denominator. Our job should be to create visibility into differentiation, to elevate the clarity on what's unique, different, better and worse from provider A to provider B to provider C. And the way to get there isn't through a thousand requirement RFP. I mean, that's necessary for clarity on exactly what we expect the provider to do moving forward. And as a principal, by the way, we do feel very strongly that transparency and clarity is very, oh, yeah. very important. No surprises. On either side, you should know exactly the environment you're getting into so that you can reasonably make commitments. And the client should know exactly what they're getting with respect to service delivery and governance and operational performance and risk, etc. So we do create a lot of transparency. We have thick RFPs. We realize that we need to create a forum through which, through collaboration and active dialogue and engagement, you can not only create that transparency, but you would have a forum to expose your differentiation, both positive and negative. I think our role as advisors, our understanding of our role as advisors has changed a lot over the last decade. And now it's a lot more about how do you create a mechanism through which your strengths and your weaknesses relative to your competitors become glaringly obvious. And that only happens through engagement and dialogue and collaboration, in addition to any of the written documentation, but it's easy to misinterpret words on a page. It's harder to misinterpret the discussion and the dialogue and the conversation and the co-solutioning. And so we try and create a forum where that's happening as opposed to just the throw it over the wall and ask somebody to respond.
1: You know, Dave, you reminded me as well, a lot of the time that we are in embedded in clients, some of the clients are not using, it just triggered me. They use advisors up front. And say, what should we cover? What's Where's the RFP? Okay, thank you, guys. Dude, We'll take it ourselves. I wonder if that's where, and Mark, you're smiling, but I can feel it now, even you just talking, Dave. Maybe that's where they actually really need the help, is to conclude, because our issues, if I'm being brutally honest and show my underwear a little bit, it's when we get to that crunch point and we don't have an advisor or they've dropped you and we're talking to a client and it becomes dollars. And actually it's probably then they need a balanced view of guys, whoa, hold on, you've got Mark on the fence here or did you're putting more focus on dollars versus what you're getting out of this? It's just came to me as you just said that, I kind of feel, and this is my experience, probably in the last four years in the UN, Texas, that I can see advisors up front, but not right way through the process. And it's when we get through the, it's usually when we present and start looking at a baffle and then we're selected and you get down to the paperwork where it's like, whoa, 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 that's not what you asked for. And we get sticky. Maybe that's also another, again, I don't know if you see that, Dave,
0: but that's a big sort of problem for us usually as well. We do see that. And we went through this. We do this periodically. We'll evaluate the deals that have happened in the previous calendar year and we'll evaluate what went well, what went poorly, what worked, what didn't work. Mm-hmm. Are there any common characteristics Of the successes and the failures. And a couple of observations from that process that we've seen consistently. One is for those that succeed, it's rarely because they had the best contract out there, right? The successful relationships, the ones that create value over a sustained period of time. It's not like the business stakeholders go back and say, wow, look at how great that contract is. Man, that was tight. That's the reason this relationship is successful, right? High five. So the contract's necessary. The contract though, isn't the primary cause of success in a relationship in our experience more often than not. The other is that we see the same provider on both sides of the ledger. And you see successes with provider A and failures with provider A. And so to your point, it's not that outsourcing doesn't work. It's not that the organization that's been selected doesn't have the right capabilities. There's something else there. Something else is contributing to failure maybe more than success because you can have a provider with an incredible pedigree, a tremendous amount of success historically. You can have an airtight contract. And six months later, you can have people doing a forehead slap about what do we get ourselves into. So what Mm -hmm. else is it that's contributing to success or failure? And I think you hit the nail on the head. It's how do you implement and how do you manage? And the better you do with implementation and creating credibility for a program right out of the gate getting to stable faster, having confidence in operational performance, and then treating that relationship like a strategic partnership and finding ways to catalyze innovation and improvement over time and elevate the conversation so that in your QBR, you're not just talking about performance credits for an SLA miss, but you're talking about real digital interventions as an example that IBM can help to, to institute into an operational process because they've done it here, 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 and here that's the way that this starts to feel green. That's the way that this starts to feel like a good experience that's creating value over an extended period of time.
1: Yeah, I like it. Like I said, as we come to of close, Dave, Mark, I really would like to get Mike Galanis on this call with the three of us. If you're good with that, Dave, I'd love to uh, just explore this even more and sort of, it'll be crazy because I know Mike and he's going to add to the, uh, yeah, that'll be quite fun to see, but I think it'd be a great one. Any Mark, I any last it. comments given this is... I really enjoy this, Mark, by the way. Thank you for introducing me to Dave, Mark, because I really want to say that out loud. If you didn't, put your hand forward and say, dude, this guy's great. He's okay, by the way. He's not great. He's okay. (laughs) But Mark, joking apart, if you didn't put your hand up and say, dude, I I really want to get this guy on, I don't think we'd have this conversation. And for me, this is insightful. It just made me think a couple of times, just sitting through here and making notes of how Dave sees it through his eyes, Mark, and how we usually see it. It's insightful, huh?
2: Yeah, and I love that. I mean, the takeaway for me is that marriage and prenup metaphor. Okay, so with your permission, I'm going to use it on a royalty-free, enduring basis. Um, It's something that we spend all our time getting focused on it, but nobody pulls a contract out in order for us to have had wonderful Christmas parties and all the fun and time with our families over the last few weeks. It's around relationships. It's around making the whole greater than the sum of the component parts. And that's what we should be doing with our client relationships too. That's what we do with our personal relationships why are we treating them differently? And I think this has been a really insightful Dave. Really appreciate you taking the time and the forethought that's gone into this. And indeed, the continuation of our ongoing dialogue with Dave and I speak probably once a month between just what's going on in the market space. What are we seeing? What are we hearing? What's new? What's innovative? Maybe sort of sharing some of our failures and seeking solace from the other side. And as as Dave said, it's wonderful to hear, you know, it's not always one provider that does this really well it's providers who do this really well in some places but not really well in other places or some clients who have outstanding client partner relationships in some aspects of the business but not elsewhere and how do we alter that level it up all the way around so look dave really appreciate your insights your counsel as always jason thanks for giving us the forum to talk through this
0: that's good any final words dave you enjoy it uh, this has been fantastic this has been fun i appreciate the opportunity to chat And hopefully the audience got a little something out of this. If nothing else, I've got something for my LinkedIn profile. I think at some point now I'm going to provide an okay consulting services for 20 years, something like that. (laughs) On that note. Yeah, let's do this other one with Mike. I'll get you guys involved. and We'll do that
1: one. But thank you very much, Dave from West Monroe. If you guys want to be the next Dave this year in 2024 and join us or even ask questions of Dave, we'll put Dave and West Monroe's connects into the, the notes. But if you want to be the next Dave or be the next one, give us a shout between Mark Hall and I, and we'll get you on. Thank you for that. That's a wrap. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Mark. Have a good one. Cheers, guys.
0: Join us again next week on the Energy Workforce of Tomorrow podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.